This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. The Department of Health and Human Resources touches the lives of nearly everyone in West Virginia in one way or another. But a big problem is internal communication. New legislation aims to fix that. In the um, Department of Health, there will be a secretary and then, and then the departments under that will report to the secretary. There's one level. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. Senate Republicans presented a wide-ranging tax reduction plan for the state Wednesday morning. Chris Schultz has more. The plan would reduce personal income tax by 15 percent across the board next year. Senate Finance Chair Eric Tarr, a Republican from Putnam County, said the plan would continue reducing personal income tax in the years to come. When our sales tax collections, without ever raising a sales tax, increase 105 percent over the previous year, it triggers a dollar-for-dollar reduction of that amount of increase. If it's less than 105, there's no trigger, and it creates a smoothing mechanism to safely bring down our income tax to zero. The plan is a departure from Governor Jim Justice's plan to reduce personal income tax by 50 percent over the next three years, starting with a 30 percent cut. The House of Delegates approved the governor's plan weeks ago, but Senate leaders called it dead on arrival before it ever reached their chamber. The Senate's tax reduction plan also includes a homestead real property tax rebate for some service-disabled military veterans and eliminates what senators call the West Virginia tax filing marriage penalty. A rebate for the payment of taxes on vehicles and a 50% rebate for the payment of equipment and inventory taxes paid by West Virginia small businesses are reminiscent of Amendment 2, which was voted down in November 2020. Senate Majority Leader Tom Takubo a Republican from Kanawha County, said the vehicle tax rebate would ensure a benefit for low-income households and those on fixed income. Because regardless if you're low-income or regardless if you're fixed income, you usually got to have a vehicle to get around, and we're going to give that back in a rebate uh, so that, that they also can benefit. Senate President Craig Blair, a Republican from Berkeley County, said the Senate is ready to move quickly to get their plan into the House of Delegates as soon as Thursday morning. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Charleston. Recent reports show that young people in the U.S. are showing up to vote. Turnout among 18 to 29-year-olds shot up in the 2020 election to a level not seen since the 1970s. The numbers also show there are more young people engaging in conservative politics. In the next episode of Us and Them, host Trey Kay explores how young people engage with politics. Here's an excerpt from our new episode of Us and Them. Abby Kiza is a researcher at Tufts University. I think that there's been some culture change that has happened over the past four years. Um, And, you know, we could attribute that to many things, but it's really been um, driven by, by young people themselves. And young people in 2018 were taking to the streets, but they were also registering to vote. And we saw that happen in 2020 as well during the the summer of, you know, pushback related to racial injustice, you know, and some of those really considerable organizing moments that young people, you know, orchestrated. And so, you know, those types of conversations, whether or not young people agree with, with some of those movements or not, raise people's awareness about what's happening in my communities. What do I believe? You know, what are my friends saying? And 
all of these little things are stepping stones to engagement. Kiza runs the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts. She says data show that big cultural moments related to political movements have an outsized impact on young people well before they are old enough to vote. All of these experiences and conversations that young people have before they reach 18 have a significant impact on what young people are going to do when they turn 18. I'm curious if you have any data that measures how older generation and their political alignment, so I guess I'm talking about conservatives and progressives or liberals, how much they have in the past engaged or, or not engaged with the youth voter. When we look at national data, we see things like, you know, young people are more likely amongst the young people who vote, who vote for Democratic candidates, right? We see that nationally, young people are more likely to support progressive policy areas and really be pushing things like um, around climate, for example. Okay. Um, a traditional, you know, obviously I know that there are conservative youth who are pushing around that. Um, but when we look more closely at what's happening in states and what's happening in communities, the picture gets a lot more complicated. There were six or seven states in both 2016 and 2020 where a plurality of young people voted for um, then-candidate and then-President Trump, right? There are communities where young people are more likely to be conservative or libertarian than progressive. Kiza says the trends around youth voting changed somewhat in Trump's 2016 victory. But she says there's a much bigger problem looming in the background. The failure of our own political system in general to make meaningful headway in getting young people to turn up on election day. When we look at how political campaigns work, their incentives are to reach out to people who they know are going to vote for them. And there's two problems with that when it comes to youth participation. One, if you're just turning 18 or 19, you may not be registered to vote, okay. right? And if you're not registered, if you're not on the voter file, you may not be contacted by some of these organizations. So that lead, that excludes some young people, unfortunately. The other thing is if you're not, if you haven't quite figured out where you're, you're at politically yet, you know, and if you haven't been exposed to these conversations before you reach 18 that we've been talking about, you may still be figuring out politics. You may not understand where different parties fit, right? Or why you would want to register with a party or not. There's a huge percentage of young people who are registered to vote but not registered with a party. And so these are, some of these are indicators, are, are reasons why a political party may not, or a campaign may not reach out to young people. There are some groups and some campaigns who have really figured out that young people have political power on both sides of the aisle. And there are some groups who are still using, you know, some kind of old, old thinking about that. You know, that either, either they think young people are liberal and they don't want to reach out to them, or they don't think young people participate or care about things. That excerpt is from the latest Us and Them podcast episode. You can download the entire show wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen online at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation.
This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 751. Breezy today with some scattered rain, highs in the 60s and low 70s. Mostly cloudy tonight with gusty wind, lows in the 30s and 40s. Mostly cloudy skies tomorrow with highs in the 40s and 50s. Support for the weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Taurus Save a Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at TaurusSaveAlaw.com. Discussions about the future of the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources for have been going on for more than a year. The agency touches nearly the lives of everyone in the state in one way or another. For the legislature today, Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice sat down with Delegate Amy Summers and Senator Mike Maroney to discuss the agency's future. Senate Bill 126 and House Bill 2006. I reviewed them. They seem to be, you're both um, involved in those to a certain extent, and that's reorganizing the DHHR. They seem very similar. Um, is, are there any huge differences that you would argue against? No, we crafted the bills together. I okay. mean, we've had conversation. We created the first bill together. And the second bill was just after more discussions, thinking it through, talking to the executive, different different members, um, what they think about it. They're, they're pretty similar, um, but with one goal in mind, to uh, restructure the DHHR into three separate departments. Mm-hmm. Agree. They, they, take, they take into account everybody's input. But you start one in the Senate, you start one in the House, because you never can predict where a bill will get hung up. So you have two vehicles. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the whole point of the two bills. That's what I was thinking after I reviewed them. But um, So obviously the McChrystal Report is the basis of a lot of this action, or you know, just the history of the past few years. So what actionable items from that report are being considered in this legislation that you all are working on together? Actionable items from the McChrystal Report? Yes. Well, one thing they said in the McChrystal Report was that communication was a real issue uh, from the people. You know, it's very tall, vertical bureaucracy in DHHR. So the way we've structured it, for example, in the um, Department of Health, there will be a secretary, and then, and then the departments under that will report to the secretary. There's one level between... Uh, the people that are running those departments and the secretary and then only one step away from the governor. So there will be better communication, uh, less, less layers to go through. Absolutely. Yeah, three, yeah, three separate secretaries, you know, maybe from the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, Department of Health Facilities. You know, DHHR is a massive, massive part of our budget. If you count federal match, somewhere probably around $8 billion. I mean, I don't know exactly, but that's probably close. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money. And the... And furthermore... So you were actually in the committee meeting where they presented that budget. Yeah. Uh, Senate finance. Uh, yes, and I'm on finance as well. You yes. were on Yes. <laughs> My apologies. No, but furthermore, like, the, the, the way it was set up now is like, 
with one secretary, mm -hmm. some of the enforcement arms are under, housed under the same secretary. Mm -hmm. So you're, we're asking for a division or a department or a division of the DHHR to enforce something on another division, all housed under the same secretary. That doesn't make sense. Too many cooks in the kitchen? Yes. Yeah. Well, or the foxes in the house. Well, it's, like, yeah. it's hard to punish yourself. Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was one of our big reasons for separating, <laughs> is that you have um, a section that provides services, and then you have a regulatory body that monitors and inspects and investigates and yeah. makes sure that those services are be, being provided yeah. okay. uh, in a correct manner. So actually on that uh, topic, we were looking through... Uh, some of the <clears throat> databases that have been discussed heavily within the committees that may have had legislation that passed that allowed for them, like the All Payers Claims Database, <clears throat> um, uh, where is it? West Virginia Path, uh, those kind of systems that haven't been entirely implemented. So you're saying that the things that you all want to accomplish in these bills will help actually see those outcomes rather than those getting kind of stuck in limbo throughout this reorganization process? Well, I think what we saw in the pandemic was that when you have a crisis in your state, the secretary and all of their resources go towards that crisis. So we've had water crisis, we've had floods, um, we've had tornadoes, I mean, all, all these different things. And when that happens, everything is the focus on that public health emergency. Because of that, then we have health facilities where people are being abused and neglected. That gets ignored, and or if not ignored, gets less attention paid to it. And we have a big foster care care crises. We are still having substance <coughs> use disorder issues, and they're just not getting the attention that they deserve. And so, with three secretary model, we feel like there will be a better focus on those specific uh, issues that we're facing. That was Delegate Amy Summers and Senator Mike Maroney speaking with Emily Rice about the future of the Department of Health and Human Resources. To hear more of the interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, Randy Yowie, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.